Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is Danny. Join me as we go deep into God's Word, as we discover the hidden gems and hidden treasures that God has made available to us all if we would have but ears to hear and eyes to see. As you come with me on this journey, let's explore God's Word and see what He desires to show and tell us in our day. This may be your first time or the next time, but I welcome you here. Let's dig in and see what the Lord has for us today. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is episode number seven, and we're moving right along. I welcome those who have returned to listen to more, and even potentially those who are tuning in for the first time. I do want to just take a moment and say I'm, again, blown away by the response of how God is multiplying and extending the reach of this ministry that I feel that the Lord has put on my heart uh, in my passion for discovering what he's saying through scripture and then what he says to us in the day that we are in. And uh, so I just want to, for one, say uh, welcome. We've, we've got listeners from India, France, Ukraine, the United Kingdom, Sri Lanka. And so I, I just welcome all of you outside of the United States where I'm currently housed and so I just welcome you and thank you for taking this journey with me. And uh, grateful to the Lord how he has extended the reach of this effort. So moving on, we are going to be finding ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 14 today. We're going to go through the whole chapter and we may not read the entire text just for the sake of time, but, but a big portion of it. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, and uh, I do want to add, I, I most often, or often rather, read out of the New Revised Standard Version, but I actually embrace many different translations, the New King James Version, the NIV, the English Standard Version, uh, the Passion Translation. I, I don't tie myself down to just one translation, and I find that God shows me unique things inside of each translation. And sometimes when I find gaps in my own understanding, if I visit another translation, I, I, I oftentimes will, it will help me unpack and digest some of that uh, that's being said and can oftentimes fill in the gaps. So I encourage you to embrace various translations as they help to build and uplift your understanding as we allow the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts and our minds through those different outlets. So again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and it starts and says, uh, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, so that would be his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in, the outs staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree that is at Migron. The troops that were with him were about 600 men, along with Ahijah, son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, carrying an ephod. Now the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. 
in the pass by which Jonathan tried to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag or cliff on one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sena. Now, sometimes I'll just I'll interject this in here. Sometimes if you dig into the meaning of the names, oftentimes there's a parallel um, that that is embedded within the names, the meaning of the names. So I would encourage you, I, I haven't looked ahead of this, but I would encourage you maybe to look at those the meanings of those names and see if you can find a parallel between the context of the story and the names that are given because it's very, very intentionally just given to us. So in verse 5, one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will act for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that your mind inclines to. I am with you. As your mind is, so is mine. Then Jonathan said, Now we will cross over to those men and will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand. That will be the sign for us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer, saying, Come up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. When then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer following after him, the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer coming after him killed them. In that first slaughter, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed about 20 men within an acre, about half a furrow long in an acre of land. There was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So I first want to just kind of highlight, as I read this portion, I was struck for the first time the significance of the section where it said in verse 13, then Jonathan climbed up, on his hands and feet with his armor bearer following after him. So picture this in your mind. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer coming after him killed them. In my mind as I've read or as I've read this before, I'd always pictured you know that oftentimes when it when it uses the language that they fell before him that that indicates that that they were struck down by you know warfare. But it occurred to me newly 
what if this actually is describing this miraculous occurrence that as Jonathan was coming up to them, the men were collapsing. Something was happening to them that was both mysterious, unexplained, and unexplainable. Because then specifically after it says, they fell before Jonathan, it says, and his armor bearer coming after him, so behind him, killed them. So they were falling ahead of where Jonathan was going, and then the armor bearer behind him followed up to put them to death. So the first thing that I want to highlight is how I have a new appreciation for the the miraculous event that that is occurring right before our eyes, rather than just simply and and it's not sim- simply in the sense of simply because you know they they are greatly outnumbered. There are two of them, and there are many Philistines, and but even more miraculous, as Jonathan is coming to them, these Philistine men are just falling down. And obviously, clearly, the power of God is going before him, is going ahead of Jonathan. And these men, it, it, it is to say that the Lord is fighting the battle for them. And, and so as, as Jonathan proceeds, goes forward, the men are falling before him. Not in, not in necessarily this adoration posture, but they're falling. They are being subdued before he even gets to them. Notice that there is no hand-to-hand combat that is occurring in this text. They are falling as Jonathan is approaching. It's this amazing picture that I've never seen before, and I feel the Holy Spirit opened that up to me just the, the previous day. So he goes on to say in verse 16, Saul's lookouts in Gibeah of Benjamin were watching as the multitude was surging back and forth. Then Saul said to the troops that were with him, call the roll and see who has gone from us. When they had called the roll, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God went with the Israelites. Verse 19, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult or the, the uproar in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, this actually struck me very interestingly as Saul made this comment to the priest. He said, he tells the priest he says, withdraw your hand. Now, this is a perspective that I have on this, and it, and it, it is a new one as well. But I believe that this statement that Saul makes, it demonstrates how disconnected from discernment that Saul was. I read this and understand that Saul 
is actually telling the priest, withdraw your hand from what is happening. Because Saul believes that it's the work of the priest that is causing this this great chaos and and he wants to move forward in action but he's saying withdraw your hand and so i believe that this just demonstrates how disconnected Saul is from discerning the things of god he thought the priest was doing this now i want to kind of issue you a question to think on is can you imagine in our day a battle that occurs like this that the enemy is thrown into such chaos and confusion because it says in verse 20 then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle and every sword was against the other so that there was very great confusion. So the Philistines were in such confusion, in such disarray, they were, they were actually fighting against one another. And so can you imagine a battle in our day where the enemy essentially defeats and attacks themselves? It's a beautiful picture of the, the battle is not yours, the battle belongs to the Lord. And so I believe that we could still see this type of thing in our day. And we ask ourselves, what did it take for this to occur? What, what precipitated this, this action, this thing to occur? What precipitated, what caused it to happen? Well, it only actually took two men to see this happen. One man to trust God, Jonathan, and then one man to trust also his leader. And if you if you pay close attention to those initial words that his armor bearer said, I'm with you. I'm I my heart is aligned with your heart, and we will head in the same direction. And so we see Jonathan believing God that he will make clear his plan. And then he will act in obedience in that revealed plan. So it took a man trusting God and then another man trusted God and also his leadership. The leadership of the one designated over him. This, the, Jonathan's armor bearer. So it's very, it's very relevant. It, it's hard to imagine in our day. But I have faith to believe absolutely, 100% um, can happen in our day. And it doesn't take this huge movement, as God shows us through the text here. It actually only took two men. So let's keep reading here. In verse 21, now the Hebrews who previously had been with them into the camp... uh, Rather, sorry, now the Hebrews who previously had been with the Philistines and had gone up with them into the camp turned and joined the Israelites who were with, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Verse 22, likewise, when all of the Israelites had gone into hiding in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, 
they too followed closely after them in the battle. So the Lord gave Israel the victory that day. The battle passed beyond Bethhaven, and the troops with Saul numbered about altogether about 10,000 men. The battle spread out over the hill country of Ephraim. Now, this next verse leads us into another uh, specific element of this storyline. Verse 24, now Saul committed a very rash act on that day. He had laid on an oath on the troops saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before it is evening. And I have been avenged on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. All the troops came upon a honeycomb and there was honey on the ground. When the troops came upon the honeycomb, the honey was dripping out, but they did not put their hands to their mouths, for they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the troops with the oath, so he extended the staff that was in his hand and dipped the tip of it in the honeycomb and put it and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers said, Your father strictly charged the troops with an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food this day. And so the troops are faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if today the troops had eaten freely of the spoil taken from their enemies. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Verse 31, after they had struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijion, the troops were very faint. So the troops flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the troops ate them with the blood. Verse 33, then it was reported to Saul, look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone before me here. So I want to, well, let me just read one more verse. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the troops and say to them, Let all bring their oxen or their sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all of the troops brought their oxen with them that night and slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So the next thing that I want to, to shed some light on is this issue of eating blood. And we find that it occurring in verse 31. So why does that matter? Why is that significant? Well, we first see this commandment from God about not eating blood. And it's given to, we see it given to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, around verses 3 and 4. And God says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, that is a commandment where we, we first see 
this issue with eating blood where a declaration is made by God to not consume the blood. Now, we actually will see this in the law that is given to Israel in Leviticus 17, 10 through 14. Now, this is where it's declared that eating blood is prohibited. This is on a corporate level. It says in verse Leviticus 17, verse 10 through 14, If any one of the house of Israel or of the aliens who reside among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut that person off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, nor shall any alien who resides among you eat blood. And if and any one of the people of Israel or of the aliens who reside among them who hunts down an animal or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For the life of every creature, its blood is its life. So he, God is making very clear, very apparent, do not partake of the blood in an animal. He says the blood is life. And he says that the blood is the path to and designated for atonement. The atonement for your lives on the altar. Now, I want to point out in verse 13, God says, You shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. Now, I want to, I want to show a really amazing parallel to that if you haven't yet kind of sniffed that out. But he says, You shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. So think about this. As Jesus hung on the cross... For you and me, his blood poured out onto the earth and soaked into the earth and covered the earth. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he talks about our bodies are earthen vessels. As Christ's blood covered the earth, so too does it cover our earthen bodies. We see in Leviticus that blood is for atonement. And in Leviticus, um, the atonement through blood. And then we see this actually same law in that's, we see the same law at work in written in Hebrews 9.22. And it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So it reinforces this concept of blood as atonement. That didn't change from the Old Testament era to the New Testament era. And so the sanctity, the importance of blood as the, as the, the channel, the pathway to atonement, to forgiveness, it takes life. I asked the Lord this some time ago about why blood? 
why why is that so why is that a part of the of the equation and he said it takes life to conquer death sin is death blood is life life must be offered to overcome death an acceptable sacrifice gives its blood its life to substitute or ransom from death so we see here that god makes a big deal about blood the blood is not for us to consume as though it were of something of low or little value no the blood belongs to god so it's really it's really important to him now the next thing that i want to point out and we just we briefly ended on it there but it's um in verse 35 and it said and Saul built an altar to the Lord it was the first altar that he built to the Lord so that should strike you as um surprising or significant and Saul is well into his his reign his rule but he has yet to make an altar unto the Lord. Now, the next thing that I kind of want to visit is why are altars important? Why should this be significant? Now, what, what does that reality teach us or show us about Saul? Now, the first mention that I found of an altar was, was made by Noah after he came out of or exited the ark. Genesis 8.20, um, after he leaves the ark, Noah made a altar and sacrifice to the Lord. Noah's act led to a response from God. And you can see that, you read that in verse 21, but it, it goes to say that when the Lord smelled this pleasing odor, this sacrifice that Noah offered to God, it, he smelled, the Lord smelled a pleasing odor, and the Lord said in his heart, and he goes on to give this, you know, this promise of what he will no longer do. Now, I want to say this scholars say that Moses wrote Genesis. Now, if Moses is writing this book, we know that Moses came you know, far after Noah because he would have been the first man and his sons and the wives. And after the, the earth was, was completely destroyed of all life after the flood. So Noah is first and there's many sons that would come after, after Noah, which would lead to ultimately lead to Moses. So Moses is writing it is writing down this info that we're reading in the book of Genesis. But what I want what really what really impacted me is that we are reading something that is not that is not um, accessible information in the sense of what we have access to knowing. The Lord smelled a 
the pleasing odor. And the Lord said in his heart, notice those two things. The Lord smelled it. And the Lord said in his heart. These are two things that are internalized. And so this insight into the heart and mind of God is only given by way of the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit made available insight into God that man does not have on his own and cannot possess. So these are completely hidden truths revealed only by the Spirit of God. Moses would have never known this info. So then you ask the question, why did Noah offer these sacrifices? If you track before that, that sacrifice, you find you, that there's no command. God didn't give a command to do so. But it was rather an expression of his heart towards God. It was his high and lofty view towards God. Now, if you think about the situation that Noah would have been in, right? All of life was wiped off the face of the earth, and now he is coming off the boat with his animals, and he has clean and unclean ones, and his clean animals, he, are, he is permitted to use as sacrifices based on God's, God's law. Now, how many of us would have actually said, well, the earth has just been wiped completely void of life. I should preserve these animals as food. I think that would be very easy to do, and many of us would think that way, but I believe that can, that goes towards the, the pleasure that God had with Noah in that he was willing to exalt God's value and say, despite the fact that I may need these, I trust you as provider and I'm going to offer them to you because you're worthy. And he had a high, high view of God. And so I believe it was the expression of Moses, of Noah's heart that pleased God so well. So he makes this altar and he sacrifices on it towards God. Altars are a place of remembering. This would be a, a fantastic self-study for you to do, but go through the Old Testament and find specific people in specific situations that they, they, something occurs and they build an altar to God. Many, many times that altars are made through significant characters throughout the Bible. And so um, it would actually be very, very informative if you went on this exploration and, and tried to discover what are the situations, the context in which altars are made and what was the result of it. But, but in a general theme, altars are places of remembering. And so, and many times throughout the Old Testament, it will, it, it will actually say that God remembered something or someone or some covenant or some situation. He remembered. It's not that God forgets things, but it comes to mind. And so that's the, this beautiful, beautiful picture of an altar is it's a remembering place. And I think it's important that all of us have these altars of remembrance, these places, situations where God has 
intervened or done something miraculous or just completely transformed our hearts or lives. And so we we need to, even in our day, and even if it's just in the sense of, you know, marking events, is what did God do for us in our particular situations? And we build this this altar. And we know that it's not what Noah did as far as the sacrifice itself, because later on we read in Isaiah 111, God actually, he's frustrated in, in, this, in a sense with with Israel, and he says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and fattened cattle. He's actually interested in the posture of your heart, the attitude of your heart towards him. So altars are important, and they demonstrate the place of the heart. In verse, we go on to read in verse 36, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and despoil them until the morning light. Or, you know, take take their spoils, capture their their inventory, uh, take them over completely. He says, Let us not leave one of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So I think we're going to close that one out. This will be a part one. Uh, next recording will be a part two because I still have quite a bit to go and don't want this one to get too long. So I appreciate you listening. Um, maybe between this recording and the next one, think about that perspective this the comment of do whatever seems good to you consider that consider the implications of it uh, spend a little time thinking about it see what you know examples that you you might could find in other scripture where that comes up and um, next time join me on continuing that um, as a as several other questions and examples of that so I thank you again for tuning in. I thank those listening from far off. Um, I hope to see you next time. And just as a parting little tidbit, I am working on getting together a uh, kind of a website to have some information out on that will link to this podcast. And I'm putting together kind of a free giveaway uh, for those who would subscribe to this channel and stay up to date with new things that are coming out. And, you know, I really want to engage with uh, this, you know, the audience that is taking the time uh, to, to, to hear what, what I could share or, or bring to the table by way of God's inspiration. So just kind of keep, I'll, I'll, I'll express that when it rolls out and, Just know that that's something that I'm working on, and I appreciate you for listening, and I appreciate uh, God the Father for uh, sending this out, and I look for it to multiply even further and to be able to proclaim His glorious name. So I bless you, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me. 
I hope this blessed your heart and you leave with something special. Let us press in to know Him more. Let us press in to know Him more. And He will find us in seeking and seek us in finding. God bless you.